Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Evan Solomon. Evan is a seasoned journalist with years of experience in print, radio, and television who has recently relocated to New York City, the Big Apple, to be the publisher of G-Zero Media, as well as joining the management committee of its parent company, the Eurasia Group. Prior to joining G-Zero, Evan was a preeminent journalist for more than 25 years in Canada, hosting CTV's nightly political program, Power Play, the number one Sunday morning political show, Question Period, and a daily radio program on iHeartMedia slash Bell Media, appropriately called The Evan Solomon Show. He was the co-founder of the Pioneering Shift magazine, the founder of this serious XM show slash podcast, Everything is Political, as well as the host of the PBS series, Masters of Technology, and CBC shows such as Power and Politics, CBC News Sunday, The House, and Future World. Evan has reported on events from around the world, interviewed everyone from prime ministers to presidents to the Dalai Lama, is the author of multiple best-selling books, and has been a columnist for both our national magazine, Maclean's, and our national newspaper, The Globe and Mail. I am now exhausted, so with my last available breath, I ask, why have we lost Evan Solomon to New York City? Let's find out. Welcome, Evan, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? First of all, I just love when you read my the biography my mom submitted, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, it's, That's she was cool. great. Hey, you forgot that he played piano in grade one. <laughs> like, you know, it's like, Mom, stop it! You know? Oh, that's so good. Uh, thanks for this. First of all, great to be here. I was raised in Toronto. My my mother's still there. My brother, my sister, my nieces and nephews. My wife's family's all in Toronto. So uh, it is good to be back. I am back and forth between New York City, where I've recently decamped, and Ottawa, where I'm just in the process of selling my house. And um, once that's done, then we will fully decamp to uh, Manhattan, which is fun. And, and partly because I've taken this job at um, G-Zero and Eurasia Group, which is I'm running this media company. where We have a PBS television show uh, syndicated on all the PBS shows. We've got podcasts. We've got a daily newsletter, G-Zero Daily. So it's really running a media company, mainly about politics, where everything is political. And it takes me back to my roots where I started Shift Magazine with Andrew Heinzman and we started a media company and ran it for 10 years. So it's great to kind of do a full circle and, and try to do it in New York where hilariously Shift Magazine, when we eventually sold it, uh, then my partner Andrew moved to New York and we launched Shift in New York. So it's a this is a real full circle. Everything in life goes around. I want to set the table regarding your current work as publisher of G-Zero Media, what is G-Zero Media? What is the Eurasia Group? And who is Ian Bremmer? So I had heard about Ian Bremmer for many years. 25 years ago, Ian Bremmer, who has a PhD from Stanford, founded what became the first and still the most important political advisory group. So this is a group that realized that if to really understand the world, you have to understand the political impact. So investors, global markets, if you're pension funds, companies and governments are all trying to see around the corner. What's the political, how will politics shape the world? But more importantly, how are events becoming political? In other words, try not to be reactive, try to be proactive. I've been a political journalist for, as you said, 25 years. I've been following politics, but politics is becoming too often reactive. Like it reacts to the world. I used to think if I followed politics, I'd always kind of be ahead. And sometimes you are. But sometimes you're behind. You miss the anger. Uh, we could talk about, you know, the trucker protests where, you know, the politicians kind of didn't see this coming. Why? They didn't see move. There's lots of movements that whether it's on the climate side, the investment side, politics is reactive. They're so busy trying to get elected. And so what Ian Bremmer has done at Eurasia Group and then in 2017, he founded a subsidiary company called G-Zero Media, was to try to look at events before they become political and to predict how they become political and how that will impact us. And G-Zero Media is kind of the public-facing arm of it. Ian's a huge figure, like he's on Politically Incorrect, and he's on CNN, and he's on CBS, and ABC, and BBC. He's a big uh, global figure, and he's his advice is sought by CEOs and governments and all around the world. And he's nonpartisan. And this is why I like him. He's nonpartisan. He's not left. He's not right. He's fearless. You saw him recently taking on Elon Musk, challenging Elon Musk on Russia. He 
dispenses fair advice and views that I think are brilliant. And he's built a team of, you know, 280 people around him and uh, that are from all, again, all walks of life, you know, and, and some people say, oh, I, I heard Jerry Butts, who used to work with Trudeau, works there. He does. But John Baird, who was a minister in the Trudeau, in the Harper government, is also there. So this is not a partisan thing for me that was important. Two, these guys are not, EG does not, we're not doing work with sort of bad governments. We're not here. We don't do kind of crisis comms. Oh, your CEO has had a situation like you've had recently with the mayor in Toronto. They don't call Eurasia Group or G Zero. We're not interested in that. That's we're interested in political advice and political uh, interpretation. And G Zero Media started as a public facing to kind of be the bridge between politics and people. People are look when people don't understand politics. Politicians become elitists and they're out of touch, and people don't trust them. But when people don't understand what politicians are doing, they become targets for like populism. You know, look, I live in the States now. People believe in Pizzagate, in QAnon, that there's pedophiles and that Hillary Clinton's running in a pizza parlor. Like people are cut off from and distrust is a pandemic. And G0 is that bridge where we understand policy. We spend a lot of time on it globally all around the world and people. And we're trying to be the first place you go to understand it. We're also fearless. We're nonpartisan. And finally, we're friendly. Like You can talk about it in a way that you're not an out-of-touch elite nerd and you're not a, a, a ranting, foam-at-the-mouth conspiracy theorist that says, you know, like, oh, you know, the deep state is implanting microchips in your head. No. We have lots of media. We have a free daily newsletter that goes to well over 100,000 people called G0 Daily that people get, uh, they sign up for. That's great. We run a podcast, a uh, series of podcasts. We uh, we are running a, a weekly PBS show with that Ian hosts, and we're expanding quite a bit. And by the way, we're expanding into Canada soon. We're having a big event in Toronto in April. So uh, it's a really fun company for me, and, I, and my learning curve is steep. Well, I think that the way the world is changing is expressed in the company name, G0. Evan, do you want to explain what's behind the company name, G0? So Ian Bremmer, the founder of both Eurasia Group and G0, uh, G0 Media, wrote a book years ago called G Z uh, G0 World. And look, first of all, names, like, you know, people ask me that. There's a real meaning to it. Like, no one asks what Google, people think, oh, that's, I don't understand it. Is it Gazero? But it's like Starbucks <laughs> coffee. But Starbucks was like a character in Moby Dick. Google doesn't mean anything. Adidas is a German family. Like, names sort of take on what they mean. But in this case, there is something to it. Bremer's insight years ago was we used to have like the G7 countries and they kind of set the global agenda. And the G, what the G7 did, the globe did. But then the world started growing, the, the developing world. So then it was the G20. Remember Paul Martin said, we got to have the G20. Like get, let's get Brazil in there and let's get different countries in there. So, and then Bremer's insight was there is no G7 and G20, it's a G0 world. In other words, there are no controlling countries. The world is now moving in all sorts of trajectories. And you're deluding yourself to think that America or China or Europe can set the agenda because the agendas are all over the place. And that's a challenge in the world and an and opportunity for some and a challenge for others. And that's essentially, if you care... Uh, the meaning of these words. That's what G zero means. I do, and I would suggest that you know, United States was probably G one. They would kind of underwrite yeah. the global norms, and I think what you're saying is nobody sets the global agenda anymore. Yeah, and and to a certain extent, people are terrified of terms like "what's the global agenda?" You know, like because people are scared of globalists and uh, big tech and you know Davos and 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 there's and look. That is a legitimate feeling because people feel with globalization that their jobs left. You know, people who were generationally uh, working um, at factories lost their jobs. Towns got hollowed out in the last 30 years since we've had globalization as, as industries have shifted to different areas like Mexico or China. And, and, and look, this has been a challenging time with people who have really benefited a lot, like ridiculous amounts, the top, top, top 0.1%, and, and a lot of people who have lost. So yeah, there's a lot of anger at globalization. 
Globalization also has a really good story, by the way. It's lifted billions of people out of poverty and given access on the socially economic ladder to lots of good things. Um, you know, infant mortality rates have plummeted and there's lots of good signs. So look, it's a mixed bag. But again, I go back to people don't trust it. Mm -hmm. And we face a lot of problems that don't care about your border. You know, climate change doesn't care whether you're American or Canadian or European. It's going to affect you. Um, we've got a series of global crises, even the war in Ukraine. Look, the United States is fundamentally important. The EU is important. Canada plays a role. The middle powers play a role. China plays a role. All these, it's not that the G0 world means no one's in control, but it means that consensus is harder. You can't just set the agenda in a locked, smoky room. And the other factor in a G0 world is people are more powerful. People mm -hmm. have lots of information. People have access to the internet. The people can organize. In America and Canada, they can organize. In Toronto, they can organize. In Iran, they can organize, right? Mm -hmm. We're seeing the young women who led a protest there. We saw the Arab Spring. And, you know, that's a, a reward, but it's a risk. Because on the other hand, everyone can organize. And so you get the weapons of mass disruption, hyper, like on steroids with AI and chat GPT, where conspiracy theories and, and bots that, you know, malevolent governments are releasing to destabilize democracies. So like we are living in a world where the arrows are flying like all over and you're tempted to just duck or do what I'm doing is try to make sense of it. And, and guess what? You get you, you get hit a lot. And that's part of the That's part of the deal. Let's talk about what you're doing. Let's get down to the very Brass tacks. Evan, what does the publisher of G0 Media do? In fact, what's your day like? Yeah, it's a great question, Andrew. Um, the, I actually replaced someone who was the CEO of the company. And so this is a subsidiary company. So essentially, that's my job. It's the same job. Um, the reason they changed the name is that I'm also actively involved in the parent company, which is Eurasia Group. And as on the senior management team, guiding that, helping guide that as well. And my day is, look, I have a great team of wonderful journalists and people who I work with. So every day we, we meet about our daily newsletter that goes to over 100,000 people around the world in Canada uh, called G0 Daily. Uh, and we're launching new products. Like we've got a new weekly, Ian Bremmer is actually writing a new Wednesday night edition. It's only two weeks old called G0 Daily by Ian Bremmer. We're launching a series of other ones, including one about Canada-U.S. relations. Soon in April, we'll launch something called G0 North. Um, so those things are coming. So we have a lot of work to do as we're expanding our newsletter. We have every day we meet about our television show. We have guests, you know, Senator Mitt Romney was on last week. We have, I have a team of people in the week that you and I are doing this podcast, flying to Munich for the Munich Defense Forum, which is the most important defense forum in the world. And we are very active there interviewing people to get the latest. This is one of the few major defense, the only major defense forum, especially for Europe with the war raging in Ukraine. Um, this is where the Chinese even send people. So the Americans and the Chinese will see if Secretary Blinken, Secretary of State, will meet with the, the Chinese counterpart over the balloon issue and the security issue. So this is a we have teams going there that I have to make sure I organize. We have a satire. We have puppets that we do political satire called Puppet Machine, which is pretty <laughs> funny. And then we then we do a series of live events and live streams and debates. Even later today, I'll be doing a Twitter forum debate on um, Ukraine and Russia. So it, the days are busy, and my mandate is to grow the grow the the, the media company G Zero Media, so more people know it. And again, we think there's a role to play for nonpartisan global, you know, analysis of, again, it's not just politics, it's everything political. I sent a guy, one of my reporters to, it turns out you'll like this because you, you and I both like sports. Absolutely. So, you know, it was Super Bowl weekend in the last weekend where the Eagles took the loss to Kansas City, which was good. Um, and, <laughs> but when the Eagles and Giants were playing, I sent one of my reporters to the game because there's a theory that sports fans are less partisan than other Americans. So if you're a Republican and you're an Eagles fan, you're more tolerant of Democrats than most Republicans because there's a lot of Democrats who are Eagles fans. Sure. And there's actually a series of studies. So I sent this guy to the tailgate party 
And he did a great little documentary on that. He was actually taped to the front of a truck by Eagles fans because he was wearing a Giants hat, which was pretty funny. But it was a really interesting way to talk. Again, if everything is political, that was the politics of sports. We did a lot on the World Cup, the politics of sports there. Sometimes we do the politics of music. We just had Renee Fleming, one of the great opera singers on. Because all things, I mean, you, you and I live in Canada. If you drink Tim Hortons or you drink Starbucks, people will make a political assumption about you. Like the politics of coffee. Yeah. Right? Oh, I see you're a big fancy pants Starbucks person. <laughs> oh, I drink Tim Hortons. It's like, I just like coffee. It's, who who on the surface cares? But those are political statements that people judge people by. And so we're interested in how that affects people. We got politics, but we also got geographies. You have a newsletter, as you mentioned, that's going to be talking about Canada. You are coming into the Toronto market this year. We're thrilled to have you, a Canadian down there. Is Eurasia Group and G Zero Media only paying attention to Canada because of your influence? Or how important is Canada today? Why are we so important towards your corporate uh, kind of initiatives? Well, well, Canada's always been a part of it. Uh, I think they're paying a little more attention because they... The economies are so interlinked. Look, largest undefended border, most important economic relationship, and probably the most ignored economic relationship, right? The Canada is the number one. I mean, China kind of vies for this. I think they, they may be now. But, you know, China's one or two as the most important trading partner to the United States. We are the largest exporter of oil to the United States, more than Saudi Arabia. So this is a significant relationship that Canadians pay incredibly close attention to. Americans pay a little less. And the reason is that we're not a squeaky wheel, but we have a lot of issues, whether they're energy issues, automobile in issues, job issues, trade issues, um, cultural issues that we think are really important. And look, Eurasia Group, we have offices in Singapore, in London, in Brazil, in, you know, all over the world. And Canada is just an absolutely critical player on the global stage, but also for the United States. And so, yeah, there's a real interest in, for, and I'm delighted to say there's a real interest in Canada. So I'm, I'm really happy that there's kind of a renewed investment in Canada from Eurasia Group. I'm glad that there's such an interest. Now, of course, New York City, much more cosmopolitan. But the joke's always been, when we used to go on family vacation down to the Carolinas, I'd get two questions when they found out I was from Canada. What hockey team do you play for? And do you know Bob? Do you know Bob from Canada? Yeah. But but you're telling me, Evan, that the, uh, Canada does have, does have more prominence in all the work you're doing, which is obviously with a global perspective. Here's the problem with those questions, Andrew. A, the answer is probably yes to both. This is what drives me crazy. <laughs> it's like, do you play hockey? It's like, yes. Yes, I do. I played hockey. I coached my son in hockey. My daughter played ringette. My wife is a taught, taught skating and coached ringette. Yes. And they're like, what? And then you're like, do you know Bob? And then you're like, oh, God, please no. And then you actually do because Canada is like the largest small village in the world. And then you kind of do know that person. And then it's kind of even and then they their assumption is confirmed. And you're like, oh, my God, you, you really do think that we're just like five people. But the truth is, that's the best part about Canada is. I do always say it's a big country. And if you've ever been in the North, and, and I've been many times, it's a massive country. But it, I always say it's the largest small village in the world. Canadians find each other. I was down in New York City. We flew in. Um, my wife and I were looking for a place to live, which, by the way, is hell. And <laughs> like hell. Toronto market people, like, if you want to feel good about your market, please uh, try to get a place in New York. Um, and, and, you know, we're like, ah, oh, the big city, you know, like New York City. And literally, we got out of the cab, and my wife says, oh, there's our friend, Adnan, like walking down the street, like near my office. My office is in Chelsea. And so it's like, you know, 5th and 22nd. And I'm like, honey, I love you, but don't get to that stage where you think like everyone looks like someone. You know how you get <laughs> yeah. to that stage? You're like, oh, my God, is that so? <laughs> it's not, actually. But so she's like, trust me, you dummy, it is. Text him. So I text Adnan. I'm like, hey, we just got to New York. Like, we've been here like six minutes. Tammy thought she thought she saw you and some your wife and he's like, yeah, yeah, we're right here. It's like, <laughs> you know, I bumped into George. We were walking around the next day and I'm like, Evan, it's George Strombolopoulos. He's like 
Hey, I'm like, <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot of Canadians in New York. And uh, on that note, since you brought it up, I want to ask, how has the transition been for you? And if I may ask about your family. So it's been, you know, we're still in the transition because, you know, I took the job in sort of late October and I just now I've just got to get my affairs in order and sell the house. It's tricky. Like it's the opportunity is fantastic. And I love the job. My wife works in Toronto, like in Canada. So she'll be working remotely. And that's uh, that's something that she's ready for. But it's definitely a challenge. My ki- Our kids are first year and second year at McGill. So that's one of the reasons we could make the move. So that's kind of cool. And also kind of how did that happen so fast? Like we are definitely on the, oh, that was a quick moment. But there we are. And and so in that case, it's tricky. And the transition, because our families are here, you know, in Toronto mainly. So that's tricky. But by the same token, we both have so much excitement left. We're so thrilled to, you know, instead of kind of lay it down, we, we both have a lot of juice. And we just feel like, what a time, two crazy young kids going to New York and, and making it work. And it's kind of, you know, it's kind of a great time. It's going to be a great adventure. And, and I always say three things. One, I love adventure. You know, I wrote kids books about adventure. So I, I love change and adventure. Two, I like a steep learning curve. I loved my job. My jobs at, CB, at CBC and at CTV were phenomenal. You know, at CTV, Power Play, Question Period, and The Evan Solomon Show were I love the teams, and I'm still working with CTV as a special correspondent, but I love them. But I wanted a steep learning curve. I wanted to go back. Andrew, you've done a lot of business. I wanted to build a media company. I wanted the opportunity to challenge myself in a new environment and a global politics. And so it was just one of those moments where if you can do some good in the world, work with smart people, keep a steep learning curve, have an adventure, how do you say no? Well, uh, jumping on that, we're so out of order here because I want to go all the way back and get your origin story. But are you comfortable sharing how you ended up with G Zero Media in New York City? Because it was a huge move. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'd known Ian Bremer and um, I'd known the work that Eurasia Group does. I mean, he appears on lots of Canadian media. And then um, a couple of people I knew worked there um, and had they were looking for a new uh, publisher, a CEO publisher. And they sort of come to me and we danced around for a long time uh, because I just wasn't sure. And then in the end, the timing was right. The people were right. The opportunity was right. They 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 presented a job offer that was in my view, too good to turn down and too exciting to turn down. And it was a really tall order to leave CTV because I loved it and I continue to love it. And, and I had, a, I've, I've continued to feel lucky, but it was just one of those moments where you do get these opportunities to run a media company in New York and to, to run one that's about politics. It was like, wait, how often does that really happen for someone like me? It was a really great fit, a great adventure. If you are enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Evan Solomon, please check out the more than 100 additional episodes available anytime. We got great social commentators, including Toronto Life's Malcolm Johnson, the Toronto Star's Ed Keenan, and musicologists Alan Cross, Eric Alper, and Jeff Woods. So many great behind-the-scenes stories directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7-365, wherever you get your podcasts. Where were you born? Describe your upbringing. Born in Toronto. Middle child. My brother's 15 months older. Jordan still lives in Toronto. He's got two kids and married an amazing woman from France. So they live in Toronto. Uh, then my sister, actually my, bro- my older brother and my younger sister born on the exact same day, uh, even though they're like three years apart. So, and so we're, we're, we were in a, a really tight family. And we grew up in kind of North Toronto, like uh, York Mills and Young area. My dad was the youngest of eight. They're from, his parents were immigrants. They grew up on Harvard Street. We're actually, you know, we, my wife and I, our first house was on Borden Street in Borden, wow. which was hilarious. And, you know, he was actually grew up on Markham Street and he was a very poor kid. The first one of eight to go to university. And he did. He became a lawyer actually. And he, his family were, were very tight. It was like, 
his brothers, his oldest sister was like 18 years older than him. And she had kids who have kids who are my age. And that clan, like we had massive family parties, like 60 people. So we had, we are very big Solomon clan. That's a big Toronto clan. And then my mom's side also is from Toronto. So, you know, we grew up doing all, you know, Toronto was our home. It was just classic Toronto, street hockey every day. <laughs> we did. We played We played road hockey uh, with our best friends. We built a fort in the backyard. You know, we, we did all that stuff. It was, like, to me, a very idyllic place to grow up. Toronto was changing. And Toronto's changed so much. I mean, it's kind of outgrowing its own infrastructure. But, um, you know, my kids were born in Toronto, or one of them was born in Toronto, one of them was born in China. But, you know, raised first in Toronto before we moved to Ottawa. So, you know, that's Toronto is where, you know, our, our roots are and our home. And so I have to ask, I mean, it wasn't your decision. I guess you have to ask your parents, how do you end up with that background going to a private boys school, Crescent School, as opposed to the public high school, so to speak? Yeah, so, so it's a great question. So we went to a Hebrew school, actually, when I first started going to school and then I went to York Mills Public School and then in grade seven my brother and I went to Crescent. One of the reasons we went to Crescent is the headmaster, the principal, actually married my mother's best friend growing up. So my mom grew up with this woman who's still best friends who had a kid who's now one of my best friends which is crazy and he became the principal of Crescent and I will say that you know for my parents giving us what they, again, you, you know, they thought that was going to be a very helpful education for us. And um, it really was. They, you know, my dad worked really hard. It's a very interesting thing because, you know, when people say, oh, you went, you must be a rich kid because you went to a private school. And no, and it's important. I'm really proud of what my dad did. Like he genuinely came from like they were they lived in a tiny house on Markham and he worked his ass off and so did my mom by the way my mom was an urban planner and she worked and they did the Canadian dream they did well and they wanted to make and they made the choices on education for their kids actually my sister went to public school throughout her time she didn't she didn't go to private school and it's funny in Canada because people ask you oh I assume you're and I'm like look you're never going to get me to apologize for the success my father had. I want everyone to have these opportunities. This is what the Canadian dream is. My my grandfather, okay, Jake Saul, who I never knew, who died when my dad was 13. Now, this is this is to me why I'm so proud of, like, I was given huge privileges. Like, I'm so lucky, so lucky. But I'm proud of it. I'm not going to diminish it because... Where my story is this, and I and I remember it, Andrew, the most vivid Toronto story. When I started, I'm going to just jump up. When I started, I was in like 22, and I started a magazine with my best friend, Andrew Heinzman, and we started Shift Magazine. And we had an office on the corner of Queen and Spadina. And I thought I was real hot stuff. You know, I got a magazine, <laughs> and I'm like Mr. Queen Street, and you know, like you're in your 20s, and you're up your own trumpet, and you're you're a dink. And my dad and my mom, we were walking up Queen and John just, you know, by the, what was then the City TV building, now the Bell Media building. And, you know, there's a coffee shop on the corner. And that's also where the National Film Board is, right? Mm -hmm. And my dad stops. And we're walking north on John to Queen. And I'm saying, well, dad, this is the City TV building. <laughs> I've been in there many times. And he's, and he's like, first of all, shut up, kid. But I noticed my dad had... Uh, very, very blue eyes. And his big blue eyes look up at the building on the west side of John, just below Queen. And he says, I want to tell you, that's stone clothing on the fourth floor, or the third floor there. And, I, and he said, your grandfather worked at stone clothing, which was a sweatshop, sewing pockets. He was the pocket maker on stone clothing on John. And he said, when I was 12, we walked from Markham Street and I got my first suit there, and all the Jewish immigrants on the line sewed my first suit for a bar mitzvah. And my dad sewed the pockets. 
then we walked home down Queen Street and my dad had to stop at every lamppost because he had a bad heart. And I had my bar mitzvah. And I'm, by the way, I'm saying this, this is February 14th when we're talking, which is my dad's birthday. Um, and his dad died uh, that year of a heart attack. So my dad gets his first suit on Queen and John at a sweatshop where they work my grandfather to death. That's what happened. He worked his ass off and died at 53 years old of a heart attack. And he had raised eight kids. And my dad at 13, then his brother, my uncle Harry, who was 10 years older, who went to, uh, was in the military, who helped raise my dad. You know, my dad makes good. And he then sends his kids off to what he thought was the best school he could in his view. And so people say, oh, you're, and I said, yeah, I am. I am privileged and I don't ever, I'm not faking it. I'm not going to lie, but I'm also damn proud of it mm -hmm. because what country do we want? My grandfather dies in a sweatshop at Queen and John. His grandson has an office at Queen and John and his son's a lawyer working down, <laughs> down the street on Bay Street. Like, isn't that the Canadian dream? The Jews then, and it happens to many groups now, they couldn't get into schools. There's quotas at universities, right? They had to go to UC college right? Which then UC, University College, where the Jews went, it was called when my dad went, Juicy. That's what it was called. And they couldn't get into clubs or boat, you know, so they were building that. By the way, many communities are knocking on the door now. They want in and they deserve to get in. But isn't that the Canadian dream? You come, you bust your ass, you drive a cab, you work in a sweatshop. So your kid, one of your kids can go to university and their kids <laughs> can have the access. So yeah, I will say this, man. Um, I came from that place. I'm, I could not be more proud of it. I get choked up thinking about stone clothing. And my kids now have opportunities that my grandfather dreamt of and wow. my father dreamt of. And that's Toronto. You said it. Oh, that's we are Toronto. all the product of all our predecessors. Yeah. And just like you say, Evan, it's, it's shocking the amount of opportunity we have today that in your case, parents, grandparents, and same with mine, absolutely did not have. Well, you took advantage of it because after you got your high school education, you went over to another excellent institution, McGill, for English literature and religion. Unfortunately, this totally screwed you up. You forgot which hockey team you're supposed to cheer yeah. for. What was your experience in Montreal at McGill? Well, I was screwed up before that. Um, I think when I when I told like I studied <laughs> politics and then I switched actually to, to uh, religion because I was really I couldn't figure out you know I was interested in how society's built and I thought you know I was interested in English and storytelling and how stories and narratives and I started studying politics and sociology but then I realized like most of the people in the world are organized and most of history has been organized politically by religion. And it was very uncool to start to talk about religion when I was at university. It was like, there was all these theories. It's the end of history. Like, don't pay attention to religion. But I thought like, it's sort of crazy. People like Americans believe in angels and, you know, the whole world is, a, so, is, is fighting over religion, whether and and God and, you know, the trouble in Ireland and the Middle East and, Religion was playing a so I, I sort of switched into that that part of religion. That's where I was intrigued with, and I and it was great. I ended up actually uh, doing my master's degree there as well, and I was a teaching assistant to a great Catholic theologian, a political theologian named Gregory Baum, who was an was a genius and a wonderful guy. And that was a lot of the sociology and, and how how do people organize themselves around their beliefs? And then of course you know. A couple of years later, 9-11 happened and religion kind of literally burst through the window again. Mm -hmm. And Americans and sort of the West kind of said, oh, I guess what we believe matters, how we vote. And, you know, this, these are big factors in American politics, the religious right and evangelical Christians. And these are influential forces. So I'm glad I studied that. You did say I was screwed up by hockey. I was <laughs> a Habs Jersey. So, so, you know, we used to play road hockey on the street and, and Mike Latimer and Ian Bird and all my, our friends, my brother, Jord, and, and we'd all put on like our people have their Leafs jerseys on. And for some reason I had, a, I was given a Habs jersey and like the Habs were winning a lot of Stanley Cups. 
And so I know I love the leaves, you know, Mike Palmatier, Daryl Settler, Boria Salman. Like, this is like, you know, I loved it. But, you know, Ken Dryden, Yvonne Cornwyer, Gila Fleur, Steve Shetler. So I had this dual loyalty, which probably prefigured why I've, I went into journalism so I can be unbiased because I, I'm trying not to pick sides. So now I have, and then when I went to McGill, back in those days, Andrew, you could go for 10 bucks as a student. So the game would start at 7.30. So at six o'clock, you'd go and you could pay 10 bucks for standing room. And a lot of young people and working class people would go. You could get a forum dog, which is a hot dog and a beer. You pay another 10 bucks. So for 20 bucks, and they used to boo the Habs who were losing, like Stefan Richet, <laughs> their Habs fans went during the warm up, And, you know, you'd get a bit, let's say you get very happy with a couple pops and a couple hot dogs. And, you know, that was one of the great nights. And I completely fell in love with that. And like nowadays, you have to be like a corporate executive to get to a hockey ticket. But now I'm a Leafs Habs fan. My son, who grew, was born in Toronto and now is at McGill, is a diehard Leafs fan. Diehard. In fact, he was wearing, he was interviewed recently on some Leafs podcast or Habs podcast and they were screaming at him. And I wore both a Habs hat and a Leafs toque to the to the game recently in Montreal. I took him to a game. And he basically says, Dad, being a Habs fan and a Leafs fan is a total abomination. I believe you can do it. And I know your wife happens to be a Habs fan. I'm just going to out you, Andrew. I'm just going to out you. We are. I am living in this situation, Evan. And I agree with your son. It's abomination. Unfortunately, this is what I am living through, too. But to your point, we can all get along. Yes, oh, I will say this after the pandemic. Can I just say one thing about a great Leafs fan? Uh, about three weeks ago, we were at the Leafs-Habs game, where actually the Leafs lost. Uh, <laughs> the Leafs are a significantly better team. And they were up 2 nothing within like six minutes. And, and I said to my son, I said, you know what? The Leafs are so much better. The Habs have nothing. And he looks at me and said, Dad, the Habs always find a way against the Leafs. I don't know what it is. Of course, they won in overtime. But... I guess it was sort of post-pandemic. The Leafs fans had taken over Montreal, every hotel. And on the street afterwards around the Bell Center there, it was so great. It was such a happy... Leafs fans were chirping at Habs fans. Habs fans were chirping at Leafs fans. And it was like all was well in the world. It was the best. Toronto fans travel well. They were just happily battling Habs fans. And I felt like... Ah, everything's right in the world. <laughs> it's always good. It's the best rivalry, and it's it always cool. will be. It's such a good vibe. Evan, you have traveled the world reporting on events, Europe, Asia, Middle East. Any of your traveling experiences really stand out to you, whether it was for work or even for pleasure? Yeah, I've been so fortunate. First to travel all through Canada. Most people travel the world, and they forget about Canada. I, my first opportunity to go to the Arctic was when I was 16, and um, I spent three months on a program called Frontiers Foundation, working with indigenous communities. Uh, and I was sent to a place called Fort Good Hope to work construction uh, with the Dene. And this German guy volunteered. It's a volunteer program. And Fort Good Hope is where the Mackenzie um, River and the Arctic Circle cross in the Northwest Territories. If you keep going up the river, you'd hit Taktayaktak in the Arctic Ocean. They go Inuvik and then Tuk. And it blew my mind, you know, 24 hours a day sun, my first moose hunts and um, mm. fishing for in canoe. And it was a transformative experience. I've been north many times. My wife works for something called Students on Ice. So she takes uh, kids to the north, to the Arctic for educational and science purposes. So she's in the Arctic a lot. Uh, my son is a big whitewater canoeer and he, he did a 52-day canoe trip this summer and ended up in Taktayaktak including on many of the rivers that I know well. So the first thing is the, the north. Um, it's too expensive to get there for people, but if you can, you know, you can travel all over the world, but it's a, it's a magical part of our country. And getting to know the, the Arctic, I just could not recommend it more. And from Toronto, there's flights to all sorts of communities in the north. And I know it's people are like, well, I'd rather go to Paris because <laughs> it's expensive. But I, you know, my, my, I, I think, I think a government official should give 
anybody south of 60 a $5,000 family credit to fly north of 60 and anyone north of 60 a $5,000 credit uh, to fly south so we can have some more north-south exchange because we need to know our own country. So that's the first thing. This country is ridiculously great. Um, you know, look, I traveled all over the world. Uh, um, I was the first journalist in Iran after they killed Zara Kazmi, the Canadian-Iranian journalist. Spent some time, some incredible times inside Iran with the Canadian Navy during the Gulf War, with the with HMCS Charlottetown and the frigate, uh, with the Fifth Fleet in the Gulf of the Arabian Sea. You know, I, I really got an opportunity to do lots of, maybe one of the most impactful ones was the tsunami. When Do you remember the tsunami hit mm -hmm. over this break? And I was immediately, I, I flew to a place called Banda Aceh, which is in Indonesia, which is on the tip of, a, um, like, if you, it's still like 2,000 kilometers from Jakarta. Like, Indonesia is huge. And we finally got there. Uh, it was 50,000 people had been killed. So there was, it was, the wave had killed 50,000 people in this uh, community called Banda Aceh. We took a helicopter over and we were getting, it was just flooded. And when you land, there were literally just thousands and thousands of bodies everywhere. And I went with, I remember I was there with a, a guy named Eric Foss, a camera guy, and another camera person, Peter Wall. Peter and I were sleeping in a tent and you could hear at night the dogs just feasting on the wild mm -hmm. dogs, feasting on the, the bodies and that was we spent a lot of time there and people ask me often you know like have you you know when you see literally open pits of people who are dead and i mean there was they were plowing hundreds of bodies into pits because it was hot and you know the heat and dead bodies don't work and so it was really and people asked because you know we shot a lot of that you know what's that like and there was a very uh an area that had civil war issues too there so it's a very a lot of unrest in Banach at that time and you know the truth is one of the things I learned over you know seeing this many times is it what that didn't affect me you know seeing that what affects you is when you go to the hospital and you see survivors mm. because they've lost their mom their wife their children their husband their brother their sister you know people focus a lot on the dead and oh did you see that but it's the living that affect that's done you don't mm -hmm. know them they're just bodies or bodies I don't mean to say that they're human beings but you don't know them. But it's their relatives, and then they, they make those people come to life. It's the same in Ukraine, you know, when you see – it's the survivors that tear at you and um, open your heart up to the humanity of the world. And so I, I, got, I was very humbling and, and, and really important places to go to see the incredible work that's being done by the rescue teams and that selfless work and these communities that you just might never know – how they're rebuilding and and those those kind of places stay with you you know and, and you do recognize how lucky we are here right i know i know it's a cliche but it <laughs> but it's true it's it's so true and you've been to all these impactful places you've also talked to impactful people i'm not going to ask you who you necessarily were your favorite people but who were your favorite interviews of all the premiers prime ministers presidents that you've met evan i always liked people who you could kind of, and Andrew, you probably get this because you do this podcast. You know, when someone's giving you an answer, that's their pat answer versus their action. So you almost see it in their eyes where their brain, like first they start and they're like, okay, I know they, I've, I've heard that one. And like, bop, 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 and they're just reading a line. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden you sort of press them or something happens and you almost see like a, it's like the light on the third floor of the house goes on. Yep. And you're like, oh, someone's home. And then another light goes on on the second floor and then another light. And you just, it's like watching a house. And then suddenly the downstairs is lit up and they're thinking and they're inhabiting their space. And, and then anything can happen. And I love those encounters. Sometimes they go off the rails and sometimes, and I like that, uh, you know, look, politicians that I, I love to argue with, you know, whether it was Justin Trudeau or Pierre Polyev or Stephen Harper. I mean, you know, I had good fortune of interviewing all the politicians many times and they were tough interviews and you're fighting with them and not, it's not personal. I, I'm like, it's like hockey for me. You know, um, once you're on the ice, I'm going for it. You go for it back. But after <laughs> you know, shake hands, I don't hit below the belt. Like it's not personal. I really try to do my job, which is to challenge assumptions. Um, I just think, you know, the interviews that I love, there's one, I remember years ago, this name won't mean anything to 99% of people, but I was doing, I was interviewing a novelist called Richard Ford. Richard Ford's like, writes in the New Yorker and 
I was 20, like seven, and I was about to publish my first novel with McClellan and Stewart, but I hadn't published it yet. And this guy had these big green eyes. He's from Louisiana. He, you know, won the, you know, like I think he'd won the Pulitzer or the Penn Faulkner. Like he's a big guy, and I loved his writing. And I said something to him, like I knew I knew sweet butter all about anything. And I said something. I remember it. I said, Mister Ford, this seems. I was talking about something a very uh, Richard Fordian event. I think I was referring to the Million Man March in Washington. And Richard Ford leaned into me. He was sitting right in front of me. And he has these big green eyes. He was a big guy. He was a guy that when someone gave his book a bad review, a critic, he nailed it to a tree and <laughs> shot it with buckshot. Okay? He shot it and mailed it back to the earth. He was that guy. Big Southern guy. And Richard Ford leaned into me and he said, on camera, wow, that's the dumbest question I've ever heard. And and I said, because I'm, I thought I'll use the classic interviewer technique, Andrew, which is, you know, turn the question back on the person, you know, you tied shit. And I said, oh, Richard, uh, you sound very defensive, right? Which I thought, and then I, I, I smiled inwardly, like I've got him now. I've thrown him off his game. I'm such a clever kid. And, he, and then he leaned closer to me. Uh-oh. And he said to me, I am defensive, Evan. That's because I have something to defend. What about you? And I never forgot that. And I was like stripped naked and, you know, he just re-rolled me there. And then, and then afterwards, I said, that was really powerful. And, and he said, look, just remember, go through life having something to defend and defend your work. But, and it's okay to be defensive if you stand for something. And if you stand behind your work. And it was one of those moments where I realized it's not enough to be clever or gotcha. It's, you got to be authentic. And I, by the way, when he ended up blurbing my novel, Richard Ford, which was kind of great. But that's a moment where I just looked at that interview and I'm like, get your crap together, Evan. Because you have to be proud of yourself, your work in order to, so you don't dishonor these really talented people that that you're interviewing. Well, one that you had that was certainly less contentious was an audience with the Dalai Lama and with your background in studying religion. How did you go into speaking with the Dalai Lama and how did you come out of it after speaking with him? Yeah, that's interesting. So His Holiness the Dalai Lama and I sort of ended up, I ended up interviewing him many times. I sort of got to know the, the Tibetan community well. I'd been to a place called Sikkim, uh, which is on the border of, um, uh, in, in India and Nepal. For some reason, I was asked to, to, to in, I interviewed him the first time for a Shift magazine. And afterwards, I expected him to be very like, you know, you and I would approach like, you know, a very holy person, like the Pope or some rabbi, but like, oh, hello, sir. Yeah. <laughs> I walked into this hotel room and he was like, so like, hey, how's it going? You want to take a picture? Like, and, and, and I, I, the whole time I was like, the first time I met him, I, I thought, you know, I was trying to challenge him, like, how do you try to tell people, you know, to be equal when you're char- you, you work on celebrities all the time to help your cause? Like, isn't that hypocritical? And he said, "Yes." And I was like, "What? You're supposed to?" <laughs> like, he just absorbed this, and and I remember thinking he never said anything. Like, I wanted some wisdom so I could like come home and say, "What did the Dalai Lama tell you?" And then I'd say, "Ah, uh, he said, you know, the sound of one hand clapping is X, or you know, always be, you know, turn the other cheek or something." But he didn't say anything particularly memorable. And then the craziest thing is when I walked out of the room, I burst out crying. I had probably not cried since I was nine. And it was weird. And I just felt so something. And then I ended up talking to many, like a a number of times I, I interviewed him. And he was so available. And three things struck me. One, he never talked down to you. Two, there was no off limits. Like at one point I, I said to him, I said, look, I don't understand you. You've, you've never had sex. You've, I don't understand what plane you're on. I, like I just had kids. And I said, like, I love my kids beyond all belief. And you don't know what that feeling is. So how, what is this bliss that you're talking about? And how do you know if it compares to the bliss of holding your child in your hand? And he said, I don't. 
and and then and I and I said, well, do you ever feel like like how do you like do you ever like get horny? Like I asked the dialogue on camera, and he pointed to his crotch. He goes, I think it's shriveled up, and he just burst out laughing. But <laughs> his his answer was so interesting, Andrew, because he said to me, he said, look, you know, you my goal. And this is what I actually believe. I think when if, if anyone's listening to us out there who's got kids or is, has a partner that you love, you know, like you love unconditionally, you love in a way that is universal, you know, or even if you have had like an orgasm or something incredible, you know, you have that feeling of, oh my God, like it's as good a feeling as the whole universe is, or you've had just one of those moments where the universe, you're at one with the world, you know, like Carlos Castaneda, stop in the world. The thing is we get to those points and then we drop. Do you know what I mean? So yep. we can reach those places. I think that's the place the Dalai Lama's right there. We're there. We there's a path up. The problem is we fall down. Yeah. I think his practice is I trying to get there. Like his path is on the other side of the mountain. But it's a, they're you know all paths are living you know they're going to the same peak. But his training is such that he can stay there. That's what I believe. That he's living in that place that we all like to use the Jimi Hendrix. We kiss the sky and fall, and he kisses the sky and stays. Now yeah. I think he's. I think it's hard for him, and I think that's why, as he said to me, the practice is brutal. It's hard. It's not easy. It's not. He's. He's not floating on a air you know, mattress on the ocean of, of like, hey, man, light. Yeah. <laughs> he's working every day and meditating and practicing to stay in that. And that's, to me, that, and so that changed my sense of what this higher plane might actually be like, that we, it's available to us. It's just like, how long do we have the discipline and the muscle memory to hang out there and stay there? And I don't know if we do. Well, it's great to know that there is this higher plane. We can sustain it. It gives you something to shoot for. I want to move on to some of your advice, your mantra, Evan. Be happy being uncomfortable. This sounds horrible to me. What is your advice related to getting out of one's comfort zone? Yeah, like I always call something the pleasurable discomfort. I love learning things. I always call, if you like to learn it's the pleasurable discomfort because as soon as you say, oh, I want to hear a good speaker or I want to go to hear some new music or I want to go see, even if I want to go see my, my favorite sports team, you're looking to learn something, to experience something that you don't control. And so you're already saying, I don't know enough. I, 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 you know, I, I need something. And so you're looking for a kind of pleasurable discomfort. Now, some people don't like it, like they don't want to learn. They don't want to feel, they want to stay with, you know, confirmation bias. Oh, like I will only hear television or radio programs or podcasts that I agree with, right? So they want confirmation of all their beliefs. So they do that. There's a market for, you know, I believe in X or Y, and I'm only going to listen to people who tell me that X or Y are right. But for me, once you want to learn things, there's this, you kind of are drawn as I am to kind of learning new things and getting out of your comfort zone and finding out that maybe your assumptions were wrong about something. One of the things when I was um, covering the trucker uh, protests in Ottawa and people kept saying, you know, you kept talking to people. Like I would put them on camera live all the time. People would yell at me and I'd say, let's talk. And they were kind of shocked because they, they had a bias, you know, oh, Evan Solomon's mainstream media, this is what he's like. And I, they thought I would have a bias. Oh, you're a trucker protest. You must be X or Y. I said, well, no, let's connect. My name's Evan. What's your name? My name's Bob. And it was incredible that we both realized we're human beings and we started learning about each other. And it was more comfortable to dismiss each other as a cliche than to actually figure it out. And that to me is life. And I'm drawn to that every day. And uh, that adventure, whether it's traveling or whether it's talking to folks or reading something, that to me is like, that weird pleasurable discomfort where you're like, okay, am I going to talk to the stranger? Am I going to try something new? And is my, is my opinion going to be right? Or am I actually going to be forced to change my mind because the person I'm talking to is right? And I'm like, oh man, I kind of love that. Well, you've convinced me. I will try and shoot for pleasurable discomfort. We'll see, we'll see how I do with it. Evan, you've been great with your time. I want to close with the deepest of all my questions. When I mention I'm speaking with you, everyone says, that Evan Solomon, always dressed to the nines. The suits are immaculate. <laughs> Do you still have to be smartly dressed and get gussied up 
for TV? Because was that uh, a pleasure or a pain? And how do you dress today? That's funny. Okay, well, you've okay. Can you tell just so people know this? This look, you look at me. Uh, Andrew and I are looking at each other. This is the podcast, but we can see each other because we're on the like a Zoom sitch. So this is what I, I I'm wearing a T-shirt and an old ratty sweater and jeans, which is what I wear every day. Now this is the funniest thing. For so many years, I was on television, like for 25 years on a nightly news show doing politics. So I was wearing. So I actually have no my my life. First of all, your comments hilarious because I really don't know what I'm doing on this. <laughs> I wear a T-shirt and jeans like every day. Often this this is so humiliating. Often the exact same jeans for like days at a time, which my wife is just like, please don't tell anyone. Often the same T-shirt. Like I just, you know, whatever. I, I'm a comfort guy and I like the outdoors because I run every day and, you know, I'm a real outdoors person. But on TV, the people see you in the suit. And 20 years ago, I didn't know how to dress. And in fact, on my first TV show I ever did, it was a weekly show called Future World. I had one suit, like one jacket. That's all I owned. I was 25. And I wore it for 46 shows, the same jacket. And then my mother bought me another jacket. And then I wore it. And everyone at CBC then cheered. They're like, he has another jacket. <laughs> and then they got me a stylist. And the stylist took me out. I, this was like 20-something years ago. And she said, listen, man, you don't know what you're doing. So this is what you should do. And I said, and I listened. And this, by the way, I've given this advice to my son. She said, just get a nice white shirt. You don't know how to match anything. If you're on television, you're wearing a tie always a white shirt. Two, you're tall. So you should have a thin tie and the lapels of your suit should be thin as well. So wear a dark suit. Just get a tie that's a little thinner. And this is how you tie this knot and wear a white shirt with it. And if you're wearing a, a white shirt with this collar and a, these things and a dark suit, you're always going to look crisp. You'll never. And honestly, I have never, I think the most I've done is wear a blue shirt. Sometimes I've worn a blue shirt with a stripe and even my producers are like, what are you doing? <laughs> I have, you know, I had like 30 white shirts and, you know, seven or eight dark suits and a whole bunch of ties for daily TV. And people were like, oh my God, you're always, I was like, it was that one piece of advice that I have never deviated from. And that's it. And it worked. You can never go wrong. You learn something, you run with that ball and it served you well. That's right, exactly. People are like, you should try that. I'm like, dude, I do not. How? Striped shirt and a striped tie? What? I, I Breaks the rule. Basically, everything I own, my wife laughs. I have black, gray, and blue. That's it. I have basically three colors. I'm, it's so basic. What is next for G Zero Media and for Evan Solomon? And to the extent you're comfortable talking about it, uh, this uh, move into Canada sounds uh, like something we'd want to hear more about. Yeah, so we're hosting a summit in um, Toronto on April 3rd and 4th, um, a Canada-US summit with a lot of politicians and CEOs uh, for a whole day. It's going to be a really exciting live event. Um, and we'll be launching a, uh, a newsletter alongside the daily G Zero Daily, which you know, people just get in their email. It's just easy to subscribe to. And then we'll be launching a weekly thing called G Zero North on U.S.-Canada politics, kind of just on North American politics and Canada. And um, we've got a whole bunch of new things coming out of G Zero, some television stuff coming, some podcasts. And so we, we have a really exciting growth year ahead. And Canada will be a big part of it. And so we'll be back and forth to Toronto to see the families and to see, uh, to do a lot of work there. <laughs> Fabulous. Well, that is excellent. And where can we best follow you and G Zero Media? Yeah. So check out uh, G Zero Media either on Twitter. I'm at Evan L. Solomon on Twitter still. Um, but G Zero Media, you can go to uh, gzeromedia.com or on Twitter, G Zero Media, just a G Zero Media. You can find it. And then actually you can subscribe to the newsletter for free. That's the kind of crazy, it's so crazy that it's for free. Even I don't understand it. I was a subscriber for years to G Zero Daily and you get lots of your, your political news for free. It shows up in your email box. It's really a great newsletter. The people that write it are like straight up brilliant. Excellent. It was fantastic getting to know you, to hear all your stories. And I'm hoping that once you're back here, we can get together and watch a Habs Leafs game I'm going to zing you. Habs aren't going to be in the playoffs this year, so we, we won't be able to watch a playoff game. But one day we'll have to break bread over a uh, Leafs-Habs hockey game. I, I'll hold you to that. If the Habs somehow, 
somehow come up with Connor Bedard, I I know how bad you would be. Wouldn't that be great if somehow the Habs sneak in and the generational talent goes over to Montreal? That would be my dream. But I I think he's going to go to Phoenix or some horrible place. You never you never know. We'll put it on the docket. You and my wife can sit, and your son and I will uh, will have wings across the table from you. Thanks so much, Evan Solomon, and wishing you continued success. Andrew, and great success with your awesome podcast. Thanks, man. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. And to the listeners, we thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. And on behalf of Evan Solomon, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. Hi, I'm Mercedes Nickel, four-time Winter Olympian and host of Dropping In, a podcast with Mercedes. This is a podcast where I interview a bunch of different people. I get the good, the bad, and the ugly, as well as I share my stories along the way. Now you can drop in at droppingin.com or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. I'll see you soon. Hi. This is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on BlastTheRadio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's BlastTheRadio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter.